Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, everyone. We have a very special guest to me on the show. I've never met or spoken with our guest. We did email about nine years ago, a little bit, but nothing ever happened from that email. But our guest today created an organization around 2000 that has had a major impact in my life. Our guest created a not-for-profit called Taproot Foundation that provides pro bono services from volunteers for various not-for-profits. After the dot-com crash in 2000 and then 9-11, I was pretty much washed out of tech. I had gone from a paper millionaire a couple of times over to pretty much living freelance job to freelance job and doing whatever it took to keep the lights on. And by volunteering in Taproot, I was able to continue developing my own project management, my own development and other skills. So then later, when I did get an offer after a couple of years of wandering in the wilderness, those actions of volunteer were actually part of what was called out and why I was hired and then very quickly created a lot of value for them and realized, oh, I should do this on my own. But still, if it hadn't been for Taproot Foundation, I probably would have gone a different route and I would probably not be an entrepreneur like I am now. So this was amazing. Aaron has continued his journey. Nine years ago, he started another organization that I think has the opportunity to be even more important. Imperative is a Corp B company that helps large companies, Fortune 1000s, provide peer-to-peer leadership development throughout and create inclusivity and connection through employees by being able to guide their communication and their efforts to develop more on a peer basis, more meaning in their work. The value that brings to organizations, I think, is pretty amazing. I'm really looking forward, and I think something for the audience is something, is how his journey as an entrepreneur has changed and how his focus and his efforts and the way he thinks about these things, because not only has he built this amazing not-for-profit, and I totally skipped the whole fact that he's a best-selling author for The Purpose Economy, really amazing book, and he's a social impact venture partner, but his work with Imperative in getting into the root of large companies and how people engage with each other and understand what it means for each other to build purpose and to build meaning in their lives, I think is truly amazing. And now with venture backing, I think that's going to even accelerate and we should see such amazing things from the company. So please join me in welcoming Aaron Hurst to the show. I am beyond tickled to have you here. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It is really such an honor. You've had in the past with Taproot, you had such an impact on my life because as a volunteer, it allowed me when I was out of work back 20 plus years ago or 20-ish years ago now, Taproot was something that allowed me to keep current with my tech skills. If it wasn't for Taproot, I think I would have become a teacher or done microfinance. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Big <laughs> I'm not deal. sure it's an accomplishment to, to prevent you from becoming a teacher. I don't know if I've uh, done my job, but I'll take it. <laughs> now that I live in Southern Spain, my kids may have yeah, if I had known the difference. 
You've had this amazing journey. You've started an iconic company and then Imperative is also something amazing. You and I, when you were starting Imperative, you and I had a small email exchange, but it was just about the time I was looking to sell my company. (laughs) So it never really went anywhere. But so I remember you starting Imperative and now the research you guys are doing and working with all these amazing companies. We love to talk about the journey we go on as entrepreneurs to kind of get to these larger things. Would you like to share where you are right now as an entrepreneur in building Imperative and taking over the world as a Corp B? So this Imperative is a recently venture-backed tech startup, and we have built out a platform that I really think addresses one of the two existential threats to the world. The first existential threat is really sustainability in the environment. And my wife is the vice president and head of global sustainability for Amazon, which is really leading the charge in terms of sustainability from a corporate perspective. I think the other fundamental existential threat to society is our lack of social cohesion. This is causing us to pull apart, which in and of itself is incredibly dangerous, but it's also leading to an incredible level of isolation, which is, I mean, just fundamentally destructive to our soul, to our health, to our well-being. So the ripple effects of this lack of uh, connection is what we're focused on at Imperative and really creating a new model using data science and behavioral science to help at scale reconnect people through shared purpose. And we built out the platform now and deployed at companies from Microsoft to Target to Hasbro to Boston Scientific, starting to help people inside companies serve as peer coaches for each other. So we've basically taken out the need for a coach and allowing peers to coach each other, which creates all the benefits of coaching, which people really need. But perhaps more importantly, it's building long-term relationships between people across race, gender, you know, marketing, and engineering, which may be the biggest divide in society. So it's just helping to like, really, I think, reconnect us as people. And right now, we're in market. Our next major milestone that I'm shooting for is wanting to get to a million conversations a day happening on the platform to get to a tipping point, which we see in the three to five-year horizon for us as a company. So everything is facilitated on your platform, the the choosing of the peer group, the tracking and the conversation. If I remember, because I've read this over different periods of time over the years, also it's the questions that are being prompted, but it adapts over time with the peers. Yeah, so it's the way it works is every employee creates a profile and we've determined psychologically what the questions to ask to determine what someone's purpose is. You can actually take an individual purpose and break that down into psychological predictors. So we're able to determine that, which helps us match people effectively, but it also enables us to dynamically create the scaffolding for the conversation so that as we're asking questions and evolving, and as you said, we're able to insert insights about themselves that normally a coach would be providing, but we're able to do that because we have those insights built into the platform, which had never been done before. It's an hour conversation each time. You're answering four questions each, um, going back and forth. So you're sharing your stories with each other. And at the end, you're pledging an action. What's one thing you're going to do to make your work more meaningful? What's one thing you're going to do to be more successful? And then when you meet again two weeks later, you're asking whether or not you did that thing. So it's holding you accountable to your best self all the time. And you do five of these conversations with a partner over a quarter. And then the next quarter, you get a new partner. So every quarter, you're getting a new accountability partner to help bring your best self forward in your work and in your life. And in that process, every year, you're building four new best friends that are transformational in and of themselves. I love that concept because I've done masterminds with other entrepreneurs and various levels from idea generation all the way to people running companies through like EO and stuff like that. So this is bringing that concept and then the data science that I think is the really interesting thing. It's almost like young ladies primer, Neil Stephenson's book, where the book keeps adapting the learning, anything I can choose your own adventure. Yeah. Choose your own adventure. 
I'm a member of EO as well. And I think about like with EO, which is entrepreneurs meeting in groups to support each other. Super powerful. But if you're a 21-year-old accountant, PwC, that doesn't exist as infrastructure. So what we're able to do is bring that to scale to every employee as a continuous support mechanism, not just for the CEO and leadership team. And that's just so critical, especially now during the pandemic and all that's going on in the world, just to have people have that kind of support. So vital and it's missing. It would seem very much that your tool, given that every article about the reason why we need to be back in offices or every company, as someone who the moment I sold my company back in 2012 was like, oh, please never own an office again, was be remote. But now so many people are talking about the idea of how to connect and how to develop it. Your imperative seems built for this moment. Yeah, it's absolutely critical for remote work because it's enabling people to have that connection. And Microsoft did a study and found that people's connections during COVID and pandemic with their immediate team have actually strengthened, but their broader networks inside the business have been decimated. And I think that's a key place where we're adding value is we're creating that ability to network inside a organization so that you're getting to know people across different parts of the business, which is really critical to career mobility. It's really critical to innovation, et cetera. So critical need there. I think as you start seeing people moving back to the office, I think one of the things we've realized is that a lot of the people you work with actually aren't in the same physical office with you all the time. And a lot of the people you need to interact with are not there. And the people don't have the interpersonal skills to build relationships effectively at work because we've been programmed to not build relationships at work. So in a lot of ways, what we're doing is a reprogramming of the corporate culture to make real relationships possible again. And then I would just add like another piece, which is with the whole Black Lives Matter movement and the increased investment in inclusion, what we've really become is the first real inclusion platform because we're building meaningful connections between people of different backgrounds and helping people build confidence to show up as their best selves in the workplace. So just very transformational power in the inclusion space. And there's actually just an article yesterday in MIT about how it's these kinds of connections are the ones that actually help with inclusion, whereas traditional mentoring ones have been proven to not be terribly effective. That concept is really interesting because my idea is I worked on a few years ago was a mentoring platform. And it's really, you you start off with this cool idea and the realization there's a huge amount of people who want mentoring, but not a very large pool of good mentors, especially ones who don't want to get paid, i.e. coaches. So I changed it around and then I ended up chasing Bitcoin. Yeah, mentoring itself doesn't tend to work well because the marketplace is asymmetrical because you have to have, to your point, there's only a subset of people who can do the mentoring that have the skills and then on top of that, they have the mentoring skills. And because each is different, not only matching them, but you have to figure out how you do quality control and quality control in that kind of a diverse environment is really challenging. We've been able to bring it down to psychology and peers. So it becomes a fully symmetrical marketplace. I like that. The benefit is really those connection points across an organization that over time, you allow your organization to be deeper integrated, especially as people rise through it. That lovely thing where someone who's brand new to your company, they're great because they're adding value to what they do. But two to three years later, all of a sudden they understand and they live, if you do it right, they live your story, your mission. I love this concept. And I remember I loved the concept when we were talking about it, but you've evolved, I want to say almost 10, nine years ago, give or take, time does fly. But where you're taking it now is really interesting. How do you see yourself now that you have this larger one? Because I remember you were out when you were starting this, you were out reaching out to people, having people trial, reaching out, you had the book, you were building awareness and trying to gain interest. Where do you see yourself now on the journey as the entrepreneur now? You're the co-founder and CEO here, the chairman of the board. Where do you see yourself on this journey as an entrepreneur? I started my first business when I was 16. I've created a small SMB. I've created with Taproot a social impact movement and organization. I think Imperative was in really two different 
cycles. The first was really as a thought leadership platform. So publishing the purpose economy, getting purpose on the radar of corporate America and frankly, corporations around the world as not a charitable concept, but actually a profoundly important one in terms of value creation and both the workforce and consumer markets. And with that, really being an advocate and being out there generating revenue from keynotes, generating revenue from supporting companies in that transformation. And then this new chapter for Imperative is really moving from a thought leadership platform and advocate for the movement around purpose to the technology that's going to enable that to scale and becoming a venture-backed entrepreneur. So I feel like I've had the opportunity, been really lucky to be an entrepreneur in a lot of different settings and to be able to learn about myself and learn about business and learn about change through each of those different applications. So as I look at today, I think we're at the early days of this venture journey. Venture, I'm finding, is a very different, it's kind of, it goes without saying, but very different journey than anything I've done before. So it's exciting to be able to be challenged in a new way. And then after this, who the hell knows? But I feel like we're still in the early days of the venture, the venture-backed entrepreneurial journey. One thing we've had previous guests talk about is they had built some foundation with earlier efforts. You have this great background again. And then when it came, they had looked at inflection points for opportunities. How did the conversation to decide to go around being VC-backed and kind of accelerate your growth as this technology platform, how did that happen? And did you see your role or your focus changing leading up to it, or was it just it happened? I think with major disruptions, when you want to do something on a massive scale and you want to like fundamentally disrupt society, you need, in most cases, a significant amount of capital very quickly to make that happen. And there's really not another model for doing that unless you have the personal cash to self-fund it, which coming out of being an entrepreneur in the social sector, there's no equity in that. So there's no accumulation of wealth that you can then redeploy for your next venture. So when I look at what was the path to making a large impact, given that I only had time and limited capital I could contribute to it, Venture made a lot of sense because I think venture also shares the aspiration for the level of success. I'm not interested in creating a $10 million business. I'm not interested in a $50 million business. Like We're looking to create a platform that's going to become at the core of the culture of every company in the world and is part of everyone's life journey is this continuous access and building relationships. And anything short of that to me is a failure. So venture provides a clear process that's aligned with that level of ambition. My ambition is financially motivated, but it's much more so, I think, motivated as what I am at my core, which is an inventor and a social entrepreneur. And inventing things no one uses is not terribly interesting. So when you invent something, you want to see everyone using it because you see the potential for its impact. How did you see your role, your focus changing as you took this on and became venture back? Did you have to be more of the manager as the inventor and this voice, this presence do you see yourself changing? It changes every week, frankly, like it's a continuous evolution. So it's hard to talk about it in terms of these bigger changes. That said, I think there's a couple of areas where I would point to. I think one is when you're venture backed as a CEO early on, you can do a lot of invention and a lot of experimentation, but the only way you scale is by building systems and building a team. And anytime you find yourself getting involved in the details of it, you're likely actually preventing growth, which doesn't mean you don't have to keep a close eye on things. doesn't mean you have to be a strong partner to your team, but it's all about getting incredible executives who know how to and have scaled similar ventures in the past and who know how to lay that track. And then being the person who's really about the vision and culture and resources. So it's the vision. Here's where we need to go, making sure everyone's always very clear on that. Here are the resources, which is the cash and the people that are necessary to achieve that. And then the culture, building a culture, especially given what we do that is authentic to our aspirations and our values around 
the role work should play in our lives and what a healthy, successful organization looks like. So those are the three things that I see as my responsibilities first and foremost. When we put Taproot and other ventures where the scaling is not at that speed, those things are all true, but the role is a little bit different because you're not moving as quickly and you are able to be more involved in some of the craft. Well, now that you're on this journey and you're the author of The Purpose Economy, your whole company is built around the idea of purpose and blocking and creating communication and connection. So this next question, I think, may be leading here a bit, but what do you see overall in the economy that you think is very important, but other people do not because they haven't seen it or they just don't understand the importance? I think that I would have a much more robust answer for you two years ago. I think the pandemic has actually accelerated the market's understanding of a lot of these issues so that there's less of a divide between me as like a futurist and visionary to the actual market itself. So, you know, the biggest thing that I see is just psychology as a economic driver of value. And in a lot of ways, if I could rewrite the purpose economy, I might call it the psychology <laughs> economy. Because if you look at a lot of the technology that's been developed over the last 10, 15 years, it's really just all built off of psychology. I mean, in positive and negative ways, right? So Facebook is using neurochemicals to build addiction to its product. Its product works based on neuroscience and psychology. You look at what's going on in the workplace. The workplace has been dominated by build skills, engage people, have clear tasks, have clear goals. What we've come to understand the last 10 years is that none of that matters if you don't have the right mindset, if you don't have a psychological safety, if people aren't fundamentally showing up able to engage and taking ownership of that. And there's been no psychological layer built within companies to help support that. And it's been taboo in the past. And I think what we're seeing now is people recognize that actually without that, you're really limiting your success as an organization and that there's a need for this psychological layer to be inserted into the culture of a company and that there's also tremendous opportunity, which we've seen across every sector just about, to innovate and capture more market by meeting the human need for meaning, the human need for these psychological positive attributes in the market, but also exploiting the negative ones, which I think the dark side, if you use the Star Wars analogy of this whole industry. And there needs to be, I believe, a lot more thought at a political level, at a legislative level, about what do you do when psychology becomes part of the economy in a very overt way. Because the whole model of free will economics, which is the basis for modern day capitalism, doesn't fundamentally add up when you have the ability for companies with significant resources to manipulate the chemical and psychological response people have to their products. When suddenly, like at some level, every company is a drug dealer, you have to have a very different model for how you go about governing that system. So what we've seen is in the political environment, a discussion around what do we do with Facebook? What do we do with these companies that are creating issues in terms of democracy and truth? I think the more fundamental question is how are we needing to, as a culture, set up ways to govern the use of psychology, the use of neurochemical release in the markets? And it's really no different. And this is not a case study in effective governance, but I think sugar is a great parallel to this. And just thinking about people become literally addicted to sugar, and yet there's no real governance over it. And the cost of society is massive. Like we're all paying taxes every year to address the health and societal impacts of sugar. And the counter narrative is always like, oh, freedom. Do I have the freedom not to pay taxes to pay for someone's medical needs because they drank six sodas a day for their whole life? No, I don't. So like, where is the accountability? Because I think with freedom, you also have to have accountability. So anyway, I'm going on and on. No, I really do like it because as an ex-media buyer, that was 
what a lot of my focus of the agency I sold, the understanding that it really was a fine tuning of little tweaks and things and burst of light and calls to action, sub-targeting. I talked with a couple of people after the Russian stuff hit with the elections and we were like, wow, they were so unsophisticated in the tools they used and the efforts they did. Yet we never thought we could be taking over countries and the media. One of these things can be used for nefarious ends. And the lines often, I think, in the economy blurry because capital creation is often seen as a positive. But if you look at the actual cradle to cradle cost of something, it's a very different math. The concept of tension between ultimate self and society, that seems to have disappeared to a large degree. It's like, yes, you should be trying, but you need to have some cons or there needs to be some structural return of your responsibility to those around you. To say that these things are necessarily wrong, it's just it's an evolutionary process. So each of these models makes sense, but then when technology adapts with it, the model has to change. And that hasn't happened yet. And unfortunately, the way our democracy is set up, which is I don't know of a better way to do it, our governance systems are glacial and technology is getting faster and faster. When you have the Moore's Law accelerating change and government, frankly, going in the opposite direction, because the Moore's Law is being applied to slow down change at the government level, it strips the system at some point. It is funny that you're saying yes, because technology and the tools and the way we can deal with things is so fast and fast and fast. And yet governments are more like, oh, we like it how it used to be or how we understood it to be when we debated it X period of times. The age of people who are elected, which tends to skew older, it's the perception technology is moving so fast. So if you legislate what's currently happening, it'll be obsolete by the time the ink is dried. So how do you develop more of like guiding principles, almost like our constitution in the US to guide this that can create a framework that can be more sustainable, more valuable longer term? Do you see yourself, given your family history with your uncle and from founding Peace Corps and stuff, do you see this as part of your journey as imperative grows and becomes more of a part within corporate America? Do you see yourself taking on a larger voice or at least attempting to build a voice in that space also? Maybe, but I think it's, as I look at it, I feel like the bigger opportunity remains with what we're doing at Imperative. I don't think going head on into political environments right now is terribly constructive. And I care too much about rational thought to be able to weather that. I've got a lot of family in politics. Most, I'd say at least half my family's in politics. And I don't know how they put up with what they put up with. I don't know that I could do that, but maybe I would adapt. Maybe I wouldn't. I just have a lot of admiration for their patience in that process and the stakeholder engagement. To me, I want to be able to address the core across society that if we can remove a lot of the fear that's underlying a lot of the bad decision making because we help people become psychologically safe, to develop a purpose mindset, to be able to have close human connection with people that aren't like them. Those are the things that are going to create the foundation for that change to happen. Otherwise, it's just MSNBC and Fox News yelling at each other and we're not getting anywhere. What? You mean those are constructive voices? We need Jon Stewart on every night of news. It sometimes feels like just destroying Crossfire on every news thing on a regular basis. But no, I really do like that concept. And I can see sort of the direction of imperative because it does change society. How people, so much of the concept of not just our lives, but just society is around how people work together. And as Imperative moves forward, that is really a positive way. Like my wife worked at McKinsey. Thank God she got out. Now is at Bain. And she recruits senior level people into these organizations and builds the processes and teams. But like their peer, their mentoring repeatedly scores incredibly poorly. So I like that idea of, okay, how do you make it so the company actually understands because of the data, all of a sudden now senior people can say, oh, here, things are actually 
connecting. We're seeing this. It's not just, oh, we had X conversations. It's, well, what happened? What goes down to the people? Where do they go? What's their quality of life? How long do they stay as employees? How likely are they to look for better things within the organization versus trying to leave? All the things that is becoming important in talent management. No, absolutely. And I think it's about a parallel with my wife's work is the whole technology around carbon capture. So it's like, how do we reduce carbon, but then also how do we capture it? And are there ways of doing that? And I think a lot of what peer coaching does, it's a fear and stress capture mechanism because fear and stress are at the core of so many of our social problems and healthcare issues in society. And that when people have a meaningful, vulnerable conversation, you're actually pulling some of the fear and stress out of someone's psyche, out of their experience. And that if we can do that enough, we just start to remove the amount of fear that's sitting inside our ecosystem that right now is driving so many problems. So I see the need for a parallel sort of fear capture system. And I see that in our conversations that we're capturing and removing fear from ecosystems. I like that concept a lot. I'm going to have to play around with it. Thank you for doing that. Another question. You've built a not-for-profit that has had a huge impact. And as someone who's been impacted, let alone the not-for-profits, and I've talked to people in not-for-profits who've had work done and just the amazingness and the like, oh my God, literally a phrase, because I was on the board of the Brooklyn Community Services. I spoke with someone, they were saying just how amazing it was to feel transformed because their ability to pay for services, these digital logo and brand had been very limited and that it just felt like a whole new awakening for the not-for-profit when they were able to get a rebranding done from a taproot team. And I was laughing. I said, I had worked on that for an athletic team and then I think it was a health center. But yeah, those things were just so fun. As someone who's already built something, an imperative is now becoming such an interesting and growing company. How do you think about the concept of your own legacy? Not about like your name on a building. What to you would a legacy mean? That's an interesting question that I think a lot of people, especially my age, struggle with. I struggle with it in probably a different way. I think one of the things that has been challenging for me is Taproot was very successful and I left when I was in my late 30s and I started it when I was 27. So at some level, I had made a contribution before 40 that at some level is enough. And it's, I think about the high school quarterback. It's like you peak early and then it's it's then like, what do you want to do? So I had that early success, which caused me to reflect a lot on what is the next contribution that I want to make or what is priority for me? And I think writing the purpose economy was a big piece of wanting to be part of helping society as a whole advance in its maturation. So that was a major contribution is to create the language, to create the framework, create the data and research to help at this point, thousands of companies shift how they were thinking about work and markets with imperative. Of, you know, I think about how do we have hundreds of millions of people suddenly having relationships and meaning in their lives, having the ability to collaborate, and that's really powerful. So that's really important. I think about my family and what kind of father I am. How am I being a mentor to my kids? I think that one's much more challenging because sort of torn between they've been incredibly privileged in their life in a lot of different ways. And I feel like with that, it's the old Spider-Man line, like comes much responsibility. But at the same time, why do they need to be held to any higher bar than anyone else and just their happiness? And am I just projecting my stuff on them? And they need to find their own journey within that. But it's hard to let go of the push for social impact, which I think they both have themselves and it's innate to their values. And they've been raising them as vegetarians, et cetera, just to reinforce responsibility in the world. But I come ultimately from a Jewish culture where the idea of repair the world is sort of the goal. Um, and what I love about the concept of repair the world is it's absolutely the right goal and it's never achievable. And there's a humility baked into that of just realizing that whatever you do at best is going to have like a tiny little impact 
in the world and you think about it at a hundred thousand, ten thousand year cycle, if you think about it from the perspective of one day going beyond the Jewish concept or a pair of the world, like the earth isn't going to exist forever, just even at that level. And then it's like, why does it even matter? And trying to like put that into that context. And if you think about it from a fame perspective, if you're Barack Obama, Donald Trump, whoever it is, 500 years from now, no one's going to know who those people are. And 500 years is a blink. So there is no real potential for success at that level once you truly have the humility to look back at it. Um, and at that point, you just have to sit back and just look at your kids. You look at the people you see every day and just try to minimize their suffering, be able to bring joy to their lives. So that's my very complicated answer to your question. No, I love it because it is the tension. I come from a mixed background, so Catholic and Jewish. So it's that love combination of you must do this and oh, this would be really good if you did it because you should be must and should. It's that fine line between the two. <laughs> so it's just the balance point between trying because that's all we can do. It's this idea that, look, infinite choice and the privilege we get from even just being able to sit here is very high. But what we can do to make it just that much better, that is something that we strive for. My tension is a Jewish, but also was raised Buddhist. And I think within Buddhism is a very different mindset towards a lot of this, um, at least as it was communicated to me. And the key in Buddhism, which is really important, is the idea of letting go of attachment. I think legacy is an attachment. It's not a real thing. And that actually prevent you from being happy because you're focused on something that's actually not real, something that is largely sort of self-defined and subjective and has no inherent meaning in and of itself. So I look at that piece and just letting go of that. And I'm also just reminded that Cheryl Barth, who was our CFO at Taproot for a long time, she was older, 20 years older than I was. And she talked about when she was over 50, she says people over 50 become, they're not scared of dying, they're scared of not living. And that's, as I get closer to the 50 mark, that really resonates for me. And I think the fear of death is what creates legacy mindset. Fear of not living is more about every day, like this is your last chance to be in this moment and this day. It's a scarcity around the time you have to enjoy life. And I go on walks every day and I look at a flower, like quite literally, and there'll be a point where I'm no longer able to look at a flower. This is not something that I will always be able to do and to be able to find appreciation in that moment and the privilege. I love that concept. I had a coach who calls himself a back in the day, a born again Buddhist, Jerry Colonna. Yep. And he, was, he was my coach as well. He was great. Oh yeah. Jerry, I really wish I had focused more attention at the time. There was this great poem out. It was so much about the idea that as you get older, you would be going through doors knowing that you wouldn't be able to open them again. So he made me read it the first session. That's cool. I think I was my mid-30s. So I don't know if that was the uh, the issue before me at the time, but no, I think that's a, a great metaphor. And I absolutely see that. Now when I travel somewhere, I'm like, this may be my last time seeing this, whereas before it was this idea of infinite adventure. I'm on the other side of 50 as you approach it. And it is that funny thing where it's like, all of a sudden I have this teenage kid and it's like, you're a god, you can do anything. And all of a sudden my inner ear is like, no, we don't want to climb that. All the cliches that were annoying is when you're younger become true, including the one I liked least but now relate to is that youth is wasted on the young, which I always thought was a great, great line. It sounded stupid when we were young. And now I like the idea of focusing on our children, their ability for them to live their lives. I want to do everything I can to give you what you need and the ability for you to create things. But I don't want to just give you stuff to exist. That balance and point. And I like how you're taking it further and having a value to society. 
Well, I think especially as Americans, white, Jewish, having had success in career, they're given an awful lot going to private school, et cetera. And I do, for better or worse, do judge sort of a career that would be fully just commercially oriented, for example, that doesn't have a fundamental value to society and that isn't leveraging that to enable more people to, to move forward. Something must be given back or is that idea that there is more than just the accumulation of monetary value in the game. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but they have the value above replacement, which is sort of a measure of compared to someone else playing that position. It's not like if you didn't play, there'd be no home runs. Like someone else would be batting for you and they would hit home runs. But like, what's your value above a typical replacement? And I also think about that as like a frame for career. What is one's value above replacement? And how much over that do you want to achieve? And it's also the thing I use to think about, should I stay in my current job? Like at Taproot, I realized my value above replacement wasn't that high. And therefore, like it's better to then be replaced because I can go do something else or my VAR is going to be higher. I like that a lot as a Yankee Jets, New Yorker background. Yeah, I definitely. And then I, the only team I've ever given up on and switched is Knicks because the Dolans are just... <laughs> I've been struggling with that one bad. too. Yeah, I went to the first games at the Barclays or the Nets and my kids were raised Nets fans, but the, I, I watched the Knicks and I can't help, but they're like so ingrained in my... So like it's just Arcane, I can't root Ewing. I mean, even Jeremy Lin. I like that concept because yeah, I left the border because it was like, okay, I'm I'm helpful, but yeah, the reality is I'm only really helpful as a check writer because there's so many better people here for this. I like that concept and really kind of coming to that. Where are you at? Where are you? Not just in your current situation, but where would you add above your placement value? Oh, it is a sports, but I never thought of playing it here. I like that. I think it's a good way to just assessing whether or not you're making your optimal contribution and whether or not you're just sort of coasting. Because if you're at or below value at replacement, then you're actually de facto not adding value to the world because that seat could be taken by somebody else. Yep. Someone else could be just doing this and boom. I like that. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for being here on the show. And thank you once again for, for building so much of what you've built. Like I said, Taproot really came at a time where I had wiped out of the tech industry and it gave me a way to showcase and build on my skills, which gave me an entry back. It did allow me to get where I am now and go on my entrepreneurial journey again. No, thank you. And thanks for creating this venue for people to understand the entrepreneurial journey. And for fellow entrepreneurs, it's so helpful just to hear how other people's challenges and wins and just similar to peer coaching, it just makes you clear that you're not alone in the journey. So thank you for creating that forum. This is fun because I get to speak with such great people like yourself of just like, okay, what's your thought process around it? Because it's easy to peanut gallery, but the reality is we all come from different areas and different perspectives and we look at things differently and want different things. So hearing from the horse's mouth why this is important and what you're going into, it changes the way that I'm going to go look and talk to my team about different things or ways I'm going to try and build things. And I know that happens for our audience a lot too. So thank you. Really, I appreciate this. What we'll do is everything will be in the show notes all to imperative to your book, to your social network, so everyone can find more out about this and how to follow you and how to engage and how to bring a little more purpose to what they're doing. Sounds great. All right, Aaron. I look forward to seeing some amazing stuff from Imperative and hopefully getting big enough with my new company that we actually can utilize something as amazing as Imperative. Sounds great to me. That was a lot of fun. I hope you in the audience, you listening, 
got as much value as I did from talking to Aaron. And like I said, it's such a huge thing to meet someone finally who's had an impact on my life. And basically, because of what he did with Taproot, I get to live the life I have now. So that was really amazing. But I think even more important is the things we can learn from this and value above replacement. That's just something as a, as a frequent Monday morning quarterback, I've talked about that concept a lot, but to look at it in our own personal lives instead of other people, to look at our own life and to engage with that concept of what we're doing. And I think it's actually more than just as entrepreneurs, but in all aspects, I think that's something really worthwhile. I know in the past, that type of mental model and looking at situations where I was in, not that I would have pulled someone in per se or replaced myself, but I think I would have looked at my own efforts a little bit more detailed and tried to focus more on what my own special craziness is in creating value. So that's a concept I think we all can play is really just asking what value above replacement are we bringing and what value above replacement we want to create. I also love his idea of imperative moving towards this concept of removing fear from the equation. And yes, most of us have smaller companies. We all are trying to build companies that will be big enough to have Imperative come and help us build our team and our culture more. But this is something that as entrepreneurs, we really should bring more into because I know I complain about the noise and the anger and this stupidity that I say out there. But looking at our own environments, looking at our own teams, our partners, our, the people we interact with to remove fear and this basic concept of what would bring more meaning to your work, to your efforts, to what you do. And maybe not with all the data science and the deepness to it, but definitely we can bring this peer-to-peer -peer basis, not as boss or business owner to employee, contractor, whatever, but person to person. And then between our teams to build that understanding of what is meaningful to you, to them, and grow. Definitely something I think I'm going to spend a lot more time thinking of, and I think it's worthwhile for everyone else. And then lastly, reference a little bit around that concept of value above replacement, but what we do as we go on the journey. As Aaron said, he created an iconic not-for-profit in Taproot Foundation. It really was a different concept. And it really is creating a lot of value. Not only have I been unemployed in my life, but I've also been on the board of not-for-profits. Not at the same time, though. <laughs> that was much later on my journey. But the way Taproot is talked about in many not-for-profits is incredible. It has created such value. He could have coasted on that. He could have been like, all right, I created something and I'm done. But he decided to go deeper. The Purpose Economy, his book, writing his book, building up the platform of Imperative, but now taking on the venture capital to take Imperative even further and deeper and grow it faster and be able to provide even more value and remove even more fear from the marketplace, I think is something that we as entrepreneurs need to really think about is what are we doing that is pushing us on? On our journey. Are we on this journey just to collect a lot of these things at whatever type of currency you live by? And yes, I fit probably a little too much on little technical digital tokens and all that other fun crypto. But the reality is, why are we doing this? And are we ratcheting up the value we create above just any one other person going through this journey 
of our life, let alone the entrepreneurial journey, are we holding ourselves to a higher standard as Aaron did from going from Taproot to his social impact as a venture partner to then imperative and of course running the book? Are we holding ourselves to the standard where we are bringing more value? Are we pushing ourselves to go there? And that's something I'm going to add more thought and more effort as I evaluate where I'm going and what I'm doing with my new business and my new efforts. So I think there was so much and there's so much more in listening to the episode that we can all take from this. So look, let me repeat, this was such an impactful on me episode. And I think now that you've listened to it, I would love to hear the parts that resonate with you. Thank you so much for listening. I can't wait to talk to you again. I hope you have an amazing day. Goodbye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.